to Romans. Revelation chapter 20. We will just be looking at the first 10 verses this morning. Revelation 20 verses 1 through 10. The mystery of the kingdom. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority of judge to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched, upon, marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beasts and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Father, we ask for your blessing and for your light, your spiritual light, to help us to understand and see. There are a lot of questions asked here by so many hearts and minds. May we offer some answers. May we offer insight that would give you glory and would also provide strength and courage and understanding for the hearts of those who ask questions. Bless us this morning in Christ's name. Amen. We won't be talking much about demographics this morning. And I start with that statement because whenever we talk about the kingdom in Revelation, most people, most theologians will attach the word millennial to it. Sometimes it's premillennial, sometimes it's amillennial, sometimes it's postmillennial. And in these days and times, there is a bit of confusion because. We hear so much about millennials in our demographics. So I don't want to confuse the two. If you are a current day millennial, it doesn't mean you have any understanding of Revelation or the end times. 
It means that you were just born between 1981 and 1996. You would also be known as Generation Y. But when we look at theology and when we look at our understanding of revelation, the word millennial comes from the Latin word for 1,000, mille. I remember in seminary, working through the theology classes, and I kept hearing this word, kiliest. I didn't understand it. I'd never heard it before. Someone, aren't you a kiliest? Well, I like chili. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. Kilio is the Greek for 1,000. So if you ever have the privilege of participating or listening to a bunch of theologians who know more than they've been educated, and you use these big words, you'll know what they're talking about. We're talking about a thousand-year kingdom, and some of you may be familiar with hearing about that. You may have heard some other preacher talk about it before. We want to understand when does it happen, where does it happen, if there is a where, and how does it come about. It's been a little confusing over the past couple of hundred years. And I reference just the last couple of centuries because that's most influence on, influential on our, our generation. Our generation and the generation of our children. Christ did come to redeem us from the bondage of sin. We all understand that and we accept that and believe that. Christ also came to deliver us and establish his kingdom. And we tend to forget that. We just gloss right over it because we don't understand it. In fact, I don't think that we really see what he meant by his kingdom. We think it is something that we look forward to. And we'll discuss that in a moment. But if you recall in Matthew chapter 4, after the story of Christ's birth, chapter 4, he begins his ministry by, at the end of chapter 3, we see his baptism. In chapter 4, he begins his ministry first by being, according to Scripture, driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit of God, where he is fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and is tempted by Satan himself and has... Great victory. He resists the temptations. And in verse 12 of chapter 4, it says, He heard that John had been arrested. He withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Quoting, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, now remember, Jesus began as a preacher, and this was his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
I cannot recall a message recorded in Matthew, a sermon by Jesus where he does not reference the kingdom in some way. So clearly, he said, it's, it's here, it's at hand. Believe it, trust it, see it. Matthew 10, 5. He sent his disciples out on a missionary journey. These 12, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he not only began to preach it himself, he discipled his disciples. Here, you go do the same thing. The kingdom is now. Now that was to the people of Israel. But before his ascension, he said, now, all of you, go and take it to the world. Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Means I'm the king over all things. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All nations. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I think it's quite clear. From his preaching and the proclamation of the gospel, all the way to the proclamation of the gospel, the kingdom of heaven was begun. However, for some time, there has been some disagreement about this kingdom. Again, when is it? Where is it? How is it? Is it a literal kingdom that has government and I don't like to use the word politicians. No. Want to look very quickly and briefly at a few definitions. There's pre-millennial. It's referenced to this. It's described as a thousand years, but it's not. We'll get into that. Pre-millennial, talking about the kingdom. Post-millennial, again talking about the kingdom. Whenever we talk about pre- or post-millennial, or even all-millennial, it's always assuming a reference point for the return of Christ, his second coming. Does he come before or after? Pre or post? And very quickly, as we look at this, we need to understand that there are several pre-millennial views. We won't go through all of them. I will try and abbreviate this because I don't want to bore you to tears. Pre-millennial view, the world continues to decay into evil because of sin. The Lord returns secretly in a rapture. This is one pre-millennial view. Secretly there is a rapture. He takes all the believers to be with him, meets them in the air, and then there is seven years of tribulation upon the earth, and then he comes again at the end of that seven years, judges the world, and then establishes a kingdom on earth for a thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years, he establishes the eternal state. That's one pre-millennial view. You might understand that and believe that. That might be what you've been taught. If you've if you're a fan of the 
left behind series of movies and books, that's pretty much what they teach and proclaim. There is another premillennial view. The world continues to decay into evil because of sin. The Lord returns at the end of this age. There's not necessarily a rapture, but there is a second coming. And then the kingdom rule for a thousand years. Some would even suggest that this kingdom rule for a thousand years has Christ on the throne in Jerusalem. We're not going to go into that detail right now. And then again, after that, the eternal state. Both of these premillennial views, and there are several others, but both of these place the second coming of Christ before the thousand-year reign. There is a post-millennial view that suggests that because of the church and the ministry of the church, there is, some refer to it as the golden age of the church, where the church, through the spread of the gospel, is able to convince the world and bring in a harvest of, of believers worldwide. The world continues to get better because of the influence of the church, and this ushers in the millennial kingdom for the glory of God and for the glory of Christ. And then after that, the eternal state. And then there is an amillennial view. Ah negates millennial. does not mean that we do not believe in a kingdom reign. It just believes that it's not a literal 1,000 years. It teaches us, the amillennial view teaches us that the kingdom is not something we look forward to. The kingdom is now though there is an element that is now and not yet, we still have much of it to look forward to, but the kingdom is now as our Christ proclaimed on his earthly ministry. It's not limited to a literal thousand-year boundary of time, but this view does recognize a kingdom, it does recognize a kingdom ruled by Christ, populated by his faithful children awaiting his second coming and judgment. And then after that, the eternal state. I don't know which one you have learned to study or you have learned to follow or believe or trust in. It doesn't affect your salvation. But it might help your confusion with some questions about Christ and his second coming and what scripture tells us particularly in Revelation if you just take the time to patiently work through some of these points of views and see which one is the most reasonable to bring peace and understanding to your own heart and mind. When we talk about Christ as king or we talk about the kingdom that Christ has proclaimed, we must recognize him as king and head of the church. Now. John has given a few details that define the thousand-year kingdom. Satan is bound in verses 2 and 3. 
Faithful saints rule, rule with Christ, verse 4. Satan will be released near the end of the thousand-year reign, verse 7. And the resurrection ends the thousand years, verse 5. Those are what Scripture gives us to, to kind of define this thousand-year reign or this millennial-year reign. So discernment is needed. The mystery of the kingdom I mentioned that because these are mysterious words. Every parable the Lord gave his disciples was veiled in mystery because it was for those with spiritual eyes and spiritual discernment. Do we as Christians claim to have spiritual eyes and discernment? Then we should be able to understand this. Revelation 13 and Revelation 17. Twice John was told this calls for wisdom. This calls for a mind with wisdom. And in Daniel chapter 12, beginning at verse 8, the, Daniel is responding to a message he received from the angel about the end times. And I am convinced that the angel is telling him about what John saw in the end times. I have no time to go into that text in Daniel chapter 12. But just briefly in verse 8, it says, I heard, but I do not, did not understand. Then I said, this is Daniel speaking, Oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, talking about salvation and the ministry of the gospel. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. So if you're in Christ, you have been blessed with some wisdom, some understanding, some spiritual light. You should be able to understand this. Now, first boundary, first definition of this kingdom, Satan is bound. Verses 2 and 3. Revelation 20. This angel who had come down with a chain from heaven seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. That might be the most difficult one to take because we want to blame so much of what we see in this world today on the devil. He must be active. He must be present. Mm, not necessarily. Satan is not omnipotent, omniscient, or omnipresent. He was not, he is a created, created being. He doesn't, he does not have equal power to God. He is subordinate to God and all of his glory and all of his might and all of his power and all of his authority. Satan is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. He is not all-present. His activity has always been under the authority of God's permission. You go back to the book of Job and you read that Job had to get permission from the Lord in order to afflict Job. And when he was given permission, the Lord said, 
You may take everything he has, do not touch his, touch his body. And then it came in stages. He kept asking. He eventually made but he was not allowed to take his life. Satan had to attack Job only by the permission of the Lord. And Revelation describes Satan as one who is bound. The word for bound in the Greek means chained or imprisoned. He was bound by, he is bound or was bound by the power and authority of God. Well, preacher, when did this happen? Matthew 12, 24, back when Christ was walking this earth and ministering to people and preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, was accused of all the miracles that he was performing were because of Beelzebub or Satan. The Pharisee said, is it only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons? Knowing their thoughts, the Lord said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. He's saying, If I'm working for Satan, then Satan's house is divided. It's not going to stand. Verse 28 of Matthew 12, But if... It is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Again, he's reaffirming the kingdom is now. And then he says this. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. The Lord was telling them that Satan has already been restricted. The Satan has already been bound. He's not going to move without permission from the Lord God. In Luke chapter 10, when the apostles were coming, or when the disciples were coming back, rejoicing in all of the success and all the healings and all the salvation, all the people they led to the Lord, the Lord rejoiced. He did not go with them on the missionary trip. And the Lord said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So very early in the ministry, there is a testimony of the Lord that the kingdom is at hand, that Satan is bound, and he has been cast out of heaven. Why was he bound? The Bible says, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. What about all the evil in the world? Do not dismiss the influence of the sins of mankind. Revelation did not dismiss these sins. Revelation described it vividly. When Revelation taught us about the beast and the false prophet or the prostitute, same thing, false prophet, prostitute. They were talking about 
political influence, political forces, political realms. Revelation 17, 15, the angel said to me, the waters that you saw were where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. When Revelation occasionally describes this beast coming up out of the sea, he is talking about the beast that is the influence of all of the political forces or political influences or people in this world that are in rebellion against God. Therefore, the responsibility of evil or the blame of evil we've seen in this world must not be laid solely at Satan's feet. It must be laid at the responsibility of man in rebellion against God. It is the consequences of man's own hubris and rebellion. Satan has never been able to take, take action without God's direct permission. That's why when we read words like from James and words from Romans, we understand the impact, the depth, and the importance. Each person, James 1.14, each person is tempted when he is lured away, enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And I wish I could read those words again and you could just hear the thunder rolling through hell. Because that's how much of an impact man's sin has on this world. But we take it so cavalierly, nonchalantly. Romans 8 Beginning of verse 13, it says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we see, according to Scripture, according to what Christ has testified, Satan is bound. It's one of the signs, one of the things that defines that the kingdom is at hand. In order that the nations might hear the gospel and not be deceived by him, he is limited. Yeah, there's evil in this world. It's because of man's presence and refusing to comply to God and scripture. We must not blame it on Satan. Satan is bound. Faithful saints rule with Christ. Verse 4, I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." You may remember the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 where a master had three servants. He gave ten talents to one, five talents to another, and one talent to a third. And when he returned, he asked them to all give an account. And to the first two talents, 
the first two servants whom he gave talents, they had returned to him. Again, they had been faithful to their master. And to both of them, he said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set over you much. Enter into the joy of your master. We understand, we've already read in chapters 4 and 5 and 6 of Revelation that there are saints in glory, protected, giving him praise around his thrones who were martyred for their faith, who died giving testimony to their faith. And we see that again here in Revelation 20. They are given the blessing, the responsibility, the honor to judge this world. And as we live in this life, in our day, in this world, we must not forget that they are there holding us accountable to the truth of Scripture, that there be no compromise, that there be no apostasy. And if there is, there will be consequences. We need to be aware of it. Satan is bound. Faithful saints rule with Christ. And ruling with Christ also reminds us, for lack of a better word, they have our back. We should stand for the truth knowing that they rule and in a sense, we rule with them in submission to them. We get to determine what is right and what is wrong and how we should live in this world. And three, Satan will be released near the end of the 1,000 years. Verse 7, when the 1,000 years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. You know, with everything that we are seeing in this world and in this day, just the pure, unreasonable insanity would make me say, he must be released. I don't need to go into detail about what you've seen it, you hear it, you, you see it every day. People don't even know if they're male or female anymore, or they claim so. People think they can do anything they want, and they're supposed to be accepted and honored and respected. Romans one twenty five. you're very familiar with this. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty uh, for their error. People 
refusing to sin, wanting to go deeper into their rebellion and into their perversion, and God just lets them go. He gives them exactly what they want, and they receive what they deserve. Why would this not be a fulfillment of Revelation 20, verse 4? Satan is released for a brief time near the end of this kingdom. How brief is it? I don't know. Clearly, it's not a literal 1,000-year kingdom. The 1,000 just is a representative number. Ten to the third power, there's kind of a Trinitarian element in that definition. So we don't know how long this time is going to last. Satan is bound. Faithful saints rule with Christ. Satan will be released near the end of the thousand-year reign. And the resurrection ends the thousand years. Verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. The rest of the dead did not come to life Isn't the resurrection only for the saved people? Aren't they the only ones that come up out of the grave? You need to read scriptures again. Revelation 20, verse 12. It's not part of the text we read this morning. It's just a little bit further down. We will get into that next week, but it will help us this morning to see. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. First, you need to realize that when the resurrection happens, there are not going to be some left behind. Everyone goes to the throne of judgment. Everyone goes. And everyone is judged. You and I, who trust in Christ Jesus, will get to appeal. Christ is my righteousness. He died for me. He took my sin away. He cleansed me. He provides mercy. But those who have no appeal to Christ will be lost. And the resurrection begins the day of judgment for the lost. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The words, this is, 
very often, whenever in our Western mind we think, well, this is a concluding, concluding statement, it talks about what was said previously, but in Eastern language, this is talking about what is coming next. So don't let it confuse you. This is does not look back, but explains what is written next. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The first resurrection that is being mentioned here is a spiritual resurrection that initiates you, if when you come to Christ, it initiates you into the kingdom citizenship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this spiritual resurrection is the most important. Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 4. God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul is talking about the saints here on earth, faithful to Christ, stand with the saints who judge with the Lord in heaven. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sin, made us alive, resurrected our souls, our dead souls, by the spiritual power of the Holy Spirit, new life in Christ Jesus. Your dead soul, cursed by sin, has already tasted resurrection in Christ Jesus. And that spiritual resurrection, as I said a moment ago, has initiated you into the kingdom of the Lord forever. I remember hearing this when I was a youngster. If you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. If you only have a natural birth, you're born in your sins, you're lost without Christ, without hope. But if you receive Christ as your Savior, you're born again. That new birth is your new resurrection. If you're born once, you die and you go to judgment. If you're born again, you only die once. Your physical death on this earth and you have everlasting life. Make sense? The resurrection ends the thousand year reigns. The thousand year, the millennial kingdom. While Satan's release from prison is a temporary threat, it initiates two things. The final eternal damnation of Satan in suffering and rebellion and the purification of all creation itself. Verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, or Babylon, and to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth 
and surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast had false and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So it initiates... The resurrection ends the millennial kingdom and it initiates two things, the final eternal damnation of Satan, of all suffering, of all rebellion, and the purification of creation itself. And then that will continue for eternity. And all of this is important because, and and I'll be very quick here, If the Lord is coming soon, why bother with anything? Christians tend to procrastinate when it comes to obedience. Some of you may have heard the argument before, oh, I've made the Lord my Savior. I've not yet made him my, I've made Jesus my Savior. I've not yet made him my Lord. In other words, they've not yet made him king. That's a problem in your sanctification. If you are not submissive to the Lord, you're not going to grow. Christians neglect to plan for generation of their grandchildren. If the Lord is coming soon, why bother to teach them anything? It's just going to be such a waste. It won't be wasted. It never is wasted. We don't know when the Lord's coming anyway. It's been said that Martin Luther once said that if I knew for certain that the Lord is coming tomorrow, I would still plant the apple tree today. We do what we are supposed to do as Christians, being faithful to the very last minute. Christians tend to forget that he is king now, only to wait for his rule in the future. We must repent of that. He is king now. He is Lord now. Christians tend to forget the saints in glory ruling with Christ. And in forgetting this, fall into spiritual laziness and compromises. Christians tend to get to this place that if it's not that important in heaven, then it must not be that important here in this world. Christ is king, and nothing about his life or nothing about his word or nothing about his truth has ever changed, and nothing about his promises to you and I has ever gone away or been diminished. We must not forget this. Let us pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word and its power and its truth, and we ask this day that you might speak to our hearts. Help us to be faithful to you in all that we do. Help us to live as kingdom citizens, faithful to our Lord, faithful to our King, faithful to our Savior. Let us love him and his word. In Jesus' name, amen.